Hello there and welcome to the ACAP Coffee Break, a podcast from the Association for Community Affiliated Plans. In today's episode, ACAP CEO Meg Murray speaks with Jared McNaughton, the CEO of Inland Empire Health Plan. Without further ado, here's Meg. This week, we're speaking with Jared McNaughton, who is the CEO of Inland Empire Health Plan in California. They are known for, among many things, being one of the largest, in fact, I think the largest duals demo plan in the country, as well as very high quality scores and has been led for the past couple of years by Jared. So welcome. Oh, thanks, Meg. It's good to be with you today. Thank you so much. So how did you get to healthcare? What is your story? Yeah, it's kind of a... Kind of an interesting story, uh, Meg. So I grew up in uh, the Central California region uh, there, and uh, you know it was a it is a place that's near and dear to our heart, uh, but uh, it's also a tough place because it has some of the lowest uh, provider to patient uh, ratios in the in the state of California, if not in the country. And and um, I, I actually was uh, the first person to go to college <clears throat> in my whole family extended family, everybody. And uh, it was thanks to a physician who sponsored me uh, to school that I was able to have that opportunity. And it was because of that, I started to get a little bit connected to healthcare because of the work that he does uh, and that he did at the time. Uh, and um, it's, it's a quite a, a wild story that I, I tried to help pay back um, all of the help that he gave to me and I did that through a really interesting thing that he had there in Bakersfield, California. He had these storage sites, Meg, all over the community full of medical supplies that uh, he would get from hospitals where he was, uh, he was a surgeon and he would get these from different hospitals in the community and then he would ship them overseas. And I would move these medical supplies during the summers in Bakersfield, which is pretty hot. And, uh, and uh, I, I just was amazed at what he was trying to do. And um, all through college, I, I, of course, stayed very close to him. And um, I, I reached out to a, a friend that uh, said, hey, I'd, I'd love to do an internship in a hospital. And so I, I had the opportunity to do that internship in, in a hospital there in Bakersfield, California. I was going to college up in Northern California. And at the same time, I um, just fell in love with that hospital environment. And uh, uh, around that same time, we had a, a really, really great opportunity to go overseas uh, to take a medical team down to uh, Nigeria, Africa. And it was on that trip when I was walking through a hospital in Benin City, Nigeria, uh, that uh, I was talking with the, the physicians and whatnot and just learning what they do. And I, I noticed this tile, Meg, that was on the laboratory countertop. Uh, I said, where did you get that tile? And they said, well, we got it actually from a guy named Daryl Corser, who's a physician in, in California. I said, well, I, I, I know Dr. Corser and I moved that tile. I wow. moved that years ago <laughs> and uh, I, I was just shocked. I, I, it was one of those moments where I just thought, wow, uh, one person can really make a difference uh, in the world in this work, uh, whether it's moving tile that needed to be on a hospital laboratory countertop in Benin City, Nigeria, or whether it's the work that happens uh, in health plans, uh, whatever it is. And 
and it really spurred this, this passion and fire for that work. And so I, I started right out of college in hospitals and absolutely loved uh, the work and the connection uh, that we have. Well, I know that even today you're involved in the global medical mission, which I know is not, it's one of your volunteer, um, a part of your volunteer work, but what is that? And through that, you also have continued to go abroad to help with medical missions? Yeah, we have, uh, Meg. In fact, an old, old uh, roommate of mine who's a physician uh, from college, he and I started that nonprofit and uh, we've uh, taken teams every year uh, overseas all the way through COVID. Uh, all of these years, uh, whether it's to Africa, uh, Asia, South America, Central America, all over the world, medical teams uh, to do that work still today. And so it's very active right now. It's helping with the crisis there in Ukraine, getting some needed supplies and, and money and equipment over there. Uh, so, so it is a side side thing, but it's something I'm definitely passionate about keeping going. So you talked about hospitals and this volunteer work, but how did you get to the health plan world then? Yeah, it's it's another wild story, Meg. You know, I I came all I moved up the ranks in in the hospital world and ended up being the CEO of a large academic medical center back east. And while I was there, uh, we were having just a real tough time uh, with the IEHP equivalent. So our equivalent here at Inland Empire Health Plan back east, just just the relationship. It was just a tough, tough uh, relationship situation where we just could not move out of the, the muck of, uh, of, of issues. And there was litigation between both entities going on. And uh, someone, a friend of mine actually uh, said, hey, have you ever heard of, of IEHP? And I said, no, I, I have no idea what that is. And they said, well, you really need to reach out to Brad Gilbert and, and talk to him about what they do there in Southern California and, uh, and how they do it differently. And uh, so I cold called Brad. Uh, this was probably now, Meg, gosh, eight years ago, uh, probably eight years ago or so. I cold called him. I said, Brad, you don't know me, but I know you through our mutual friend. And uh, I've heard you're doing some incredible things. I'd love to learn about how to reset the relationship between a hospital and a payer. And uh, Brad said, well, why don't you come out and see what we do? And we can talk about that in person. So I actually brought out Meg, our entire executive team from that uh, facility back east. Uh, had our CMO, our CFO, uh, the physician enterprise uh, president all came out to IHP and we were blown away. We, we were absolutely blown away by what we heard. We had never heard of a health plan taking such an incredible uh, just stake and, and wanting to make sure that what was happening in the provider community, whether it was physicians or hospitals or ancillary providers, to make sure that they were well taken care of and that there was a true partnership. Well, what he didn't know was that the following day, uh, we actually spoke with providers, doctors and hospitals in the market, because you know it's kind of easy to talk about how great you are, but it's really hard to have a, a physician, especially say they love their insurance uh, plan and health plan partner. And we were again shocked. Uh, the, the comments coming out of the provider community here were just incredible. And I remember looking over to our CFO and saying, have you ever heard of anything like this anywhere that you've worked uh, to have the kind of relationship that the, the payer and the provider does? And, and he was shaking his head. I just, he said, I can't believe this. And Brad allowed us to take back East on a zip drive, all of the MOUs and all of the, the presentations that were shared. And we sat down with that uh, payer partner there and about 45 days or so later, all the litigation was dropped and the relationship was started over. 
And it was all because of IEHP and the unique way that they partner. And so fast forward uh, a, a few years after that, uh, my wife, Heidi, who's a critical care nurse, is her background. Uh, we knew we needed to get back to California for family reasons. It was time to kind of take care of some aging parents there. And uh, I had planned on going back into the hospital world. I'd kind of already kind of worked through some opportunities to, to do that. And Brad called and uh, said, hey, we've got a COO opening. Would you be interested? And I said, oh, gosh, Brad, I have no health plan experience at all, except for knowing when I should pick up the phone to, you know, to, to, to talk about a claim or something. And he said, well, we want you for what you do know, not for what you don't know. And you know hospitals, and we need somebody that really can understand that. And you know our, understand a little bit of our culture. So I came in, actually, Meg, as the COO, and uh, actually had, had an incredible, incredible joy here. It's been the best role I've ever had in my career. It's uh, incredible how this organization, although it's a public entity, uh, created by our two counties here. Uh, it is the most mission-minded organization I've ever worked with. And they've got this su super cool model that Brad started, uh, uh, do the right thing. And they're serious about that uh, in, in everything that we do. And so it's, it's kind of a neat story how all those pieces fit together to, uh, to get me now here where I am. Well, that, that actually leads me to my next question related to the provider plan relationship throughout COVID. And I know in California, a lot of the plans are highly um, capitated in terms of how they pay their providers. Is that true for IHP? To the extent that you are um, capitated, how did that impact the relationship between the plan and the providers during COVID? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we're we're incredibly fortunate out here and very grateful for an amazing relationship that we have with our two counties that, that created us. And I think because of that, the connection that we have with the provider community is uniquely different. Uh, we're, we're very, very close with all of our hospitals and our physicians. And to your point, while we did have, and still to this day have, our primary care physicians on a capitation arrangement, uh, that, that works well, the, the hospitals and the specialists are, are not. And um, during COVID, we made a decision and had to go to the state to, to get a blessing for all of this. But we created a first of their kind emergency amendment, contractual amendments with our, our hospitals to make sure that they had continued cash flow during COVID. And part of that, you know, was being an old hospital CEO, uh, I, I kind of knew that the things that the hospitals were having to close, which were all of the ancillary services, diagnostic imaging, all of those things that really are, are helping to keep propped up the, the operations of a hospital, uh, elective surgeries and whatnot, all of that was canceled or closed, which meant that the funding that we would typically provide through the claim side, uh, whether it's a per diem or an APRDRG process, we could not do. And so <clears throat> we, we worked with the hospitals very closely to basically almost create a um, capitation-like arrangement, uh, a short-term capitation-like arrangement for our, our hospitals and our specialists, because we knew the specialists were impacted because they're the ones that do the procedures that then were canceled. I'm so proud of the team here that put those together. Uh, there were just incredible amounts of work to make sure that we looked in the past to figure out what was, for, for instance, a 12-month a uh, run on, uh, on claims that would come in for a particular organization and how could we make sure that they were staying whole uh, through COVID 
uh, during that time when the claims, of course, were just about zero on the on on the pieces of the elective side, versus what they were seeing uh, through their ER uh, and ICUs with actual COVID patients. So that emergency amendment uh, piece was a huge win, I think, uh, for both the hospitals and the specialists. And then we also did something that was very unique. Uh, we actually decided as a health plan to uh, purchase within the first uh, 30 to 45 days, we actually purchased millions of dollars worth of PPE. Uh, we had a unique contact to, to grab that quickly. And, uh, and again, I think some of that is just because when you have folks that are, are connected to that world previously, we, some of us understood that this is gonna be a big issue. And we were very grateful that we could grab that early and uh, put that in, uh, in the hands of our providers and our hospitals so that they weren't having to reuse uh, masks uh, or at least for sure not as often or whatnot. Uh, so all of that work all the way through to the skilled nursing side where we increased rates uh, specifically for those COVID-19 patients that, that could leave the hospital to free up those beds. Um, and, uh, and, and get them, of course, into a place where they still needed care, but uh, uh, really could not have the kind of funding that they needed because of the, the, just the incredible impact on the frontline provider community. So a lot was done in partnership with the community, and, and it really is a, a testament, I think, to the, the, the DNA that IHP has had for years, uh, ever since it started, on being that partner with the provider community uh, not just sit back and, and be a claims payer, uh, but really trying to figure out ways that we can help to improve the health for everyone and take care of everyone. So it, it was it was incredible to watch. And these payments, were they loans or were they actual payments? No, they were not loans. Uh, we made the decision uh, again after consulting with the state and saying, can we flip a, uh, a hospital and specialist over to a, um, a, a capitation-like agreement. And what we did is we basically looked uh, prior, the, the 12 months prior to COVID and uh, looked and saw how much, uh, what was really being paid out uh, to a particular hospital or specialist during that time. And uh, we would make them whole uh, based on what was, that was happening at that time versus what was happening today. And so we did have some requirements there that we, we had to make sure that the hospital had done its due diligence on being able to get some of the special federal funding that was available. And all of that uh, was, was incredibly well orchestrated by our finance team to make sure that uh, they would look and see did, how much of that federal funding did they get and, and, and really make sure that our funding wasn't on top of that, but it was in augment to that to get them to that whole number that they had 12 months prior. And so some really good reconciliation work that the team did just to make sure everybody was getting what they needed to continue operations. Well, continuing on the theme of COVID, uh, it changed obviously so much in our personal lives and our work lives. And I'm curious in terms of your management um, of the organization, how, how have you changed what you do in, in a post-COVID world? Maybe, hopefully we're in getting closer to post-COVID world, but the, the world that we're in now, how has your management style changed? Yeah, you know, it's changed a lot. Uh, because I was in hospitals my whole career, you know, I never worked from home a day in my life. <laughs> and so when I took over the CEO position, I, I, when Brad retired um, and I took that uh, position over, I'd only been in the role for six months and then COVID happened. 
And so uh, for me, that was really a, an interesting time as a leader because now we're trying to figure out, obviously, as everybody was, you know, what do you do with your team to keep them safe? That's the number one priority for your team. Make sure their safety is there and then how to make sure to continue the business operations. And, and, and huge kudos to our IT leadership at, at the time that the work that they did Within three weeks, we had everybody at home uh, set up and, and they were continuing to be able to do the work. And I think we learned so much during that time on what works well and what doesn't work so well in, in that environment. We previously had never had any work from home at all. I, everybody was in a single building. Uh, we had some, some folks that were at, in satellite offices out in the community just because of the geographic area we serve is over 27,000 square miles. Uh, so it's huge. I think eight or 10 states on the East Coast can fit into just our two county region. It's just massive. Um, and so because of that, we did have some of those satellite offices, but for the most part, everybody was in this main uh, building headquarters. So for us to go from that culture environment uh, to all of a sudden everybody's working from home uh, and then to try to come back to your point into some normalcy of what does that look like now moving forward? And I think we've come up, come to, to a pretty good point where we understand now what can be done at home. And for us, um, we, we have about 3,000 uh, employees here, and about half of them are full-time work-from-home uh, folks. And that's, those are folks that are in call centers, claimed adjudicators, uh, where productivity is really easily measured. Uh, then we have a, a, a big group uh, that's on a hybrid schedule, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in the office, Monday, Fridays at home. Uh, and uh, then we have a, a small group of folks that are here five days a week just because of the work that they do, whether it's our facilities or other folks that have to really be here five days a week. That, that schedule of having those three buckets has, has seemed to work pretty well for us. Some folks we've been calling back in, uh, they were full-time um, work from home, and, and we just have felt like some of the innovation that we're very well known for. We've won the state uh, Department of Healthcare Services Innovation Award uh, more than double any other health plan, commercial or local in the state. And we felt like some of that innovation work just wasn't happening at the pace that it happened prior. And so we're we're learning and growing still, and and just trying to figure that out. But for all of us, it's just certainly a dance that we'll still be in the middle of, I think, for a bit longer. Well, one of the other things that um, our health plans in particular are, are known for and in IHP in particular is the work on social determinants of health and housing in particular. I know you've done some interesting things on respite care. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you're working on now and what you see as the future of STOH, especially in California, because of course the waiver is so, um, it, that, that's such a big focus of your new CalAIM waiver. It is. Yeah, it is, Meg. Yeah, it, we uh, folks may know that uh, the, the CalAIM initiative is the largest, most expansive change to the Medi-Cal Medicaid program in the state's history. Uh, I mean, the state has put in so much uh, great stuff. We think it's great stuff uh, in that waiver uh, to our friends there at CMS uh, to really make sure that some of the work actually the IHP pilot project for the state uh, is actually in that. And so whether that was the health homes uh, pilot or whole person care pilots that we we, can, we were part of both of those, that learning turned into CalAIM on what worked and didn't work. Uh, the social determinants of health space is just a core principle of CalAIM and to try to make sure that uh, those 
uh, those determinants of health are, are met in a way that is right where the person needs them to be met. So whether that is on the homeless front where you'll, you'll see within the CalAIM structure, uh, there are things that are called community supports or, or um, uh, ECM, which uh, for us is, is a care management uh, initiative under CalAIM that really focuses on those folks that are uh, the, the most complex patients. Um, you're starting to see, I think, some really exciting things happen in both that community supports bucket, which are, there's 14 of these approved services that are uh, really designed to address very specific social determinants of health needs of our members. That's everything uh, from working with community-based organizations or CBOs that help to, uh, for instance, take a home of a member that may have had to now be in a wheelchair and do home modifications all the way through to tenancy services for homeless uh, individuals that just need that little extra boost there to get them through a unique time. Uh, so for us, whether it's the community supports bucket, which we're, by the way, we, we came out of the gate as one of the, the health plans in the state that decided to offer uh, more uh, at or more uh, than any other health plan in the state, 11 of the 14 approved. Uh, is what we came out of the gate on, or with this enhanced care management ECM uh, piece, which is really about creating a support, uh, a little support group made up of a community health worker, uh, a behavioral health worker, a nurse, and other folks to really rally around those incredibly complex members. Uh, we're excited about uh, this initiative with CalAIM simply because it allows it to be very tailored. So now, it's not that there is a, you know, we're texting all the members the same thing. Uh, it's being incredibly tailored to what are the needs of that particular member? How do we keep them out of the emergency room? Uh, how do we make sure that they have the food that they need that through medically tailored meals? Uh, how do we make sure that they have the housing uh, that they need uh, or other support services? So we're very excited about this. It's something that's part of IHP's uh, building blocks since the very beginning. So it, it's really cool to see it come forward. Well, I can see why your college named you Alumni of the Year. I saw that uh, on LinkedIn. You're the uh, the Leopard of the Year, and it, I, it was clearly well-deserved given everything that you're doing there at IHP. So in your free time, we talked about the Global Medical Mission, which I assume takes up a lot of your free time, but I always like to end on the question of what people are reading for their relaxation or, or rejuvenation or further education. Yeah, you know, I um, I, I do love to, to read uh, books just for self-improvement and whatnot. I, I, I'm right in the middle right now, of the 12 Rules for Life, uh, the Jordan Peterson book uh, that's out. I I also love reading reading a lot about uh, uh, pilot stuff. Uh, I, I went to I got my license pilot's license when I was in college, and uh, so lo love all of that kind of genre stuff too. So um, I, I wish I wish that I had even more time for reading because I think it's incredibly insightful. Whether you're reading uh, something actually from from the work that you folks do, which is super cool. Uh, you guys have a lot of great information out there at ACAP, just, just to learn from one another all the way through to some of those kind of what, what can you do better as a person and just learn. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, thank you for joining our Coffee Break podcast. Well, thanks, Meg, for having me. Hope you have a great day. And with that, today's episode of the ACAP Coffee Break has come to an end. But remember, you can find and subscribe to the ACAP Coffee Break wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for stopping by and we'll see you next time.